full disclosure, I've never taught through the book of Hebrews. I've read the book of Hebrews a lot. I've always desired to teach through it. Um, it's always been a desire of mine. I've never had the opportunity to actually teach through the book. And so Hebrews this morning, uh, this is the first official teaching on this beautiful book. Now, what we're going to do today is just go through six verses. And in these first six verses, you're going to see 12 unique characteristics of Jesus that nothing, no one in existence possesses except him. And I, and I call these 12 reasons to worship Jesus, why, why he's worthy and deserving of all worship. 12 specific reasons in just Hebrews 1 through 6, just the first six verses. So whoever the author of Hebrews is, we don't know. Um, he is anonymous. We don't know. We have a, an idea. I tend to lean toward it being Paul. That's just me. Don't. I have reason, but I don't want to get into it. So the author of Hebrews is anonymous. Um, but the letter is written primarily to a Jewish audience um, and believers who are struggling to continue and endure and fight through and they need encouragement to not go back to the old system that Christ came to fulfill. And so I'm just going to read Hebrews chapter one, verse one through six. So again, here's the direction we're going. We're going to look at 12 reasons uh, why Jesus is deserving and worthy of, of all worship, not even our worship, worship of angels uh, at every, um, every knee will bow before his name. We're going to look at 12 specific characteristics of Christ that set him apart from everything and everyone in existence. In other words, Nothing and no one else possesses these attributes that we're going to go through in just six verses. Okay, so let's see if you guys can track with me and see them yourself in Hebrews chapter one, verse just six verses. Again, small section packed full of theological truth. Now, there is going to be application. There is a way to apply this truth to my life. There is a call to action. But Hebrews is mainly theology. Hebrews is mainly a glimpse into Jesus because when I see him clearly, right? When I see him better, my life will adjust accordingly. Not without my efforts, not without my conscious awareness, but my life does adjust according to uh, my view of God that improves and grows. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to hopefully, by the grace of God and by His Spirit, open the eyes of your hearts a little more to His greatness. Because if you see Him, you'll live differently, okay? You live better when you see Him clearly. So verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, opens up like Star Wars, in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, everyone talking about the last days, are we in the end days? He has spoken to us by His Son. Okay, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So Jesus already being talked about. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, there's different verses that testify to God being referred to as the majesty, the almighty. Okay, so Jesus seated at the right hand of the majesty, the father, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. 
that all God's angels worship him. So first six verses, a few things you need to know about Hebrews. It's addressing primarily a Jewish audience. Um, whether these Jewish people are on the fence about Christ or they're committed to Jesus, regardless, these first century Israelites are tempted to go back to what Christ has pulled them out of and set them free from and what Jesus has ultimately fulfilled being the law and the sacrificial system and the old covenant. Okay, another thing you got to know about Hebrews, and I'd write this down if I were you, is that the author of Hebrews is going to be referencing the Old Testament a lot. This is a very Old Testament heavy letter to Christians. Now, there's quite a few letters in the New Testament that, you know, um, rely on the, the Old Testament to a degree. And, and the Old Testament is the new concealed and the new is the old revealed. Like we understand that. But Hebrews is on another level because Hebrews is tracking with a lot of early Jewish thought and understanding of how the world worked according to the way Yahweh's worked with them. So the author of Hebrews is working with a, a specific framework that the Jews had that is foreign to us. So our job is to bridge the gap as much as possible. So this might seem a little heady and intellectual at times, but the reason I go back to these Old Testament references is because if you don't have an understanding of the original context of those Old Testament passages the author is using here in Hebrews, you're going to fundamentally misunderstand how he's applying it in the New Covenant way of relating to Jesus, okay? So let's go back to verse 1. This opens like a Star Wars movie. It says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, so the author of Hebrews, got an itch in my eye, is, is, you know, relating with the Jewish audience on the level that they already know that God has spoken to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Noah, and, and Elijah, and Daniel, and David, and, and Solomon, and Samuel, the list goes on and on, Joshua, Moses. Okay, so the Jewish audience knows, yeah, God has spoken to our fathers, and the author of Hebrews is going to work with that, that premise, okay, and then he's going to build on it. So he's gone long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let me take you to Numbers chapter 12, so you understand what the author of Hebrews is really saying, okay? Because a third thing you need to know about Hebrews is number one, okay, again, it's for a Jewish audience primarily. Number two, it's heavy Old Testament referencing. Number three, um, I lost my freaking train of thought. Gosh darn it. Oh, it's comparing Jesus to... Um, the old covenant way of doing things and saying that he's better. Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus is the better mediator. Jesus is the better high priest. And I probably should have started with an overview now that I'm thinking about it. Jesus establishes a better covenant, uh, better promises. His blood speaks a better word. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Solomon. He's better than angels. He has the better name. He's better than Melchizedek. All throughout Hebrews, the, the, the main point is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Don't go back to your old way of life. He's better. He's better than everything you can imagine and everything you might cling to. So Numbers chapter 12 is going to help us understand what it means that God has spoken to the Israelite fathers in the, in the past and what that looks like. Okay, this is just a glimpse into it. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 through 8. God speaking through Moses, he says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, okay, I, the Lord, make himself known to him in a vision. 
I speak with him in a dream. So there's already two ways that God has up to this point in human history, when Moses is on the, on the scene working with Israel, up to this point, God has spoken through visions. God has spoken through dreams. In other words, humanity is not without the word of God. God has spoken. You know, it's Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or their forefathers, Noah and his kids. God speaks through visions in a dream. Now look at how he says Moses, though, is different. I didn't even put this on the screen. My bad. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With Moses, I speak mouth to mouth or face to face. Clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. He's talking to um, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' siblings. Sibling, sibling rivalry, right? And he's saying, you guys wanted to speak against Moses? Let me tell you something. Like, I talk to people. I'm God. I, I intervene. I'm, I'm not God, but I'm talking on behalf of God in this text. He's saying, I'm the Lord, and I speak in visions. I speak to prophets in dreams. Sometimes I speak in riddles. But with Moses, it's face to face. With Moses, it's mouth to mouth. There's, there's something different here. So when you go back to Hebrews, all throughout the Old Testament, God has spoken. God has spoken through the prophets, through the judges, through people like Joshua and Moses, um, the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay, God has spoken in visions and dreams, like to Joseph, in visions, like to Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And, you know, the list goes on and on. God has spoken in tons of different ways to his people throughout human history. So we are not without God's intervention. We are not without God's word all throughout human history. Now, there's different seasons of how that word builds on each other and how it progresses. But the point is, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, Israel had something unique. He says that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, the Gentiles, uh, pagan nations outside of Israel, they didn't have that. They did not have the prophets. They did not have the visions and the dreams and the, and the word of God coming through the, the judges and those appointed to be priests. They didn't have that. This was unique for Israel. Okay? So already, the first verse, what we're seeing is that God has worked uniquely with a specific nation in times past. This word through the prophets and dreams and visions was primarily... For Israel, the nation, and the patriarchs of Israel alone. That doesn't mean God didn't intervene with and speak to any Gentiles whatsoever. But the word of God primarily was to Israel and for them. So that they would be a reflection of that word and character of God to the world, of course. It wasn't just for them. But the point is God spoke to a specific nation in specific ways at specific times. Now, look at verse 2. Now he's going to switch and say, but in these last days, referring to the final, I think, era of human history, we're in the final phase of human history, okay? And it does last quite a while, but it is the final phase. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. So Jesus is coming, his death, his resurrection, his life marks the beginning of a new phase of a new era of human history. And Jesus marks the beginning of that final phase in human history. And here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. God spoke to the prophets in Israel through many different ways. But in this final stage of human history, God has given to us 
a better word, a fuller revelation. So here's the first thing. Remember how I said we go through 12 characteristics of Jesus that make him worthy of all worship and praise? Number one, Jesus is the perfect revelation and the better word of God. And I'll say that again. Jesus is the perfect revelation and the better word of God. This doesn't mean that, uh, you know, God didn't speak at all or his words were somehow ineffective because they weren't Jesus in the flesh. But Jesus is a fuller, more complete. When he says, look at me, you'll see the father. He really means it. When you see me, you see the father. I and the father are one. He really means that. Here's what Moses actually testifies of in Numbers 18. And again, I got to go back to the Old Testament a lot to kind of give you the first century Jewish worldview to understand how to receive Hebrews correctly. Okay. Numbers 18, 15. Was it 18, 5? Please be 18, 25. 35. 5. Hold on. Um... What verse is it? Hold on. I mistyped. Numbers 18. Why is it so hard to find all of a sudden? Oh. Deuteronomy 18. Sorry. Okay, go to Deuteronomy 18.15. Not numbers. Silly. Okay, watch this. This is Moses, prophetically speaking. He tells the people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. He will have similarities to Moses. And Moses is speaking of a coming future time. God will raise up for you a prophet from among you, from your brothers. So whoever this coming prophet is, there's conditions. He has to be from among the Israelite people. And Moses says, you need to listen to him. You really need to listen to him. Now, Moses is not talking about Daniel or Elijah or Isaiah or, uh, you know, Ezekiel or any other prophet like that. He's speaking to Jesus. Here's how I know this. In Luke chapter 9, verse 35, you have Jesus taking Peter, James, and John on a mountaintop for a little excursion. They get a little weekend getaway, okay? You get a personal vacation with Jesus. And Peter sees Elijah and Moses show up to Jesus on the mountain talking to him. And he goes, holy, hey, uh, let's build a few houses here, a little, if you, um, you know, play tents tabernacles you might say not worship places but let's let's stay up here essentially peter goes let's stay here because this is freaking awesome and then a cloud and then the, the text actually says peter said that because he didn't know what he was saying and then here's what happens as peter's saying these things a cloud comes overshadows them and you're supposed to think mount sinai when god descends on the mount in the cloud you're supposed to think of God being the cloud rider. I don't want to get too into that. But as he was saying these things, the cloud comes and overshadows them. And they were afraid. Peter, James, and John crapped their pants as they entered the cloud. Verse 35. Watch this. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is God speaking. Okay. And this is what he says. 
This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. So the father validates obedience to the son and the son's authority. And the father says, this is my uh, divinely authoritative expression of me. My son, listen to him. Listen to him. And it's the exact thing that Moses prophesies of when he says, the Lord will actually raise up for you a prophet like me, and you really need to listen to him. Like he's going to be unlike any other prophet you've ever known. He's going to have similarities to me, but he won't be like perfectly like me. He'll be better. This is what Hebrews is speaking of, guys. Jesus is the final and better word. He's the, he's the complete revelation of the Father. He's the better word of God. He's what we've been waiting for. Now, the author of Hebrews will build on that. If I say Paul sometimes and I slip up, I'm, I'm exposing myself. I think it's Paul. So you can catch me if you want. But again, the author of Hebrews is, is anonymous on purpose, I believe. Uh, verse 2, In these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom, watch this, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So the second thing you see about Jesus, number one, he's the perfect revelation and the better word of God, the final word of God to humanity. Okay? He has the final say. He's the ultimate authority. He's the perfect prophet, priest, judge, king. He's everything we've been waiting for. And he speaks on behalf of the Father to the degree that when he speaks, it's the Father speaking. This is why Jesus says, I don't say anything unless the Father tells me. I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it. He's one with the Father. He's the perfect express image of God. So this is the second thing. Jesus is the rightful heir of all things. So the author of Hebrews is connecting a couple of ideas for us, okay? Number one, he's the final spoken word from the Father that signifies and signals the end phase of human history. Second, he's the rightful heir of everything that exists. Everything in our universe, the whole cosmos, he's the rightful king and heir of it all. And this is what Psalm chapter 2 says. Uh, weirdly enough, the author of Hebrews is going to quote the Psalms quite a bit. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. So you might want to just have your Bible open to Psalms when we go through Hebrews. Watch this. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, it says, This is the Father speaking. Ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is inheritance language. So this is, this is the Father speaking to the Son prophetically. And, and David being the vessel through which the Word of God comes, testifying to what's going to happen in the future. The Father speaks to the Son and says, I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth will be your possession. In other words, everything that is mine, Son, will be yours. You will inherit the nations. The whole world belongs to you. This is why it's stupid. When the devil tempts Jesus, remember in the wilderness, and he goes, hey, bow to me, I'll give you all the nations. Jesus goes, I don't need you to give me the nations. I don't need you to give me the nations, devil. It's my inheritance. And it's humanity's inheritance, and I'm going to win it back for them. I don't need your authority. i got my own authority. Crazy. Satan's stupid. So the second thing is Jesus is the rightful heir of all things. Now, this is going to get unpacked throughout Hebrews. I really want you to pay attention to this theme of, of inheritance and heirship and uh, Jesus being the rightful heir or firstborn son. Pay very close attention to that language in Hebrews. Okay, he's gonna, the author of Hebrews is going to draw that out for us. But again, 
my mind is everywhere right now. In the beginning stages of a book, in the introduction, okay, the author of that book will um, give you uh, glimpses into the ideas he's going to build up later and build on later in the book. In other words, the whole book of Hebrews is going to be built on these, the introduction here. He's giving you the ideas in seed form before he builds on it and gives you the whole tree throughout the rest of the book. So here we have in, in seed form, the idea of heirship and inheritance and Christ being the heir. And we have the idea of Jesus being appointed. We have the, the idea of Jesus being better. Okay, now the third thing you're going to see is that Jesus is the method of creation. Can't make this up. It says through whom he created the world. What do you mean, God, that you created the world through the sun? What the heck does that mean? You created the, all, of, all of our material world, the whole cosmos, you created through the sun? What does that mean? It means exactly what you think it means. If you go back to Genesis, when God speaks, let there be light. And then you go to John chapter 1. Jesus is the word of God. Who's the one accomplishing and realizing the spoken word of God on behalf of the Father? Not as lesser, not as inferior, but playing the role that he has as the divine son. Who's accomplishing creation? Here's what you got to understand, okay? Colossians chapter 1, 16 through 18. And I'm using a lot of scripture to, to, to build these ideas out, okay? Colossians 1, 16 through 18. Referring to Jesus, watch this. It says, by him, by Jesus, all things were created. That's, that's testifying to the authority and the supremacy and the power of Christ. In heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. In other words, not just authorities and rulers in the physical realm on the earth, but rulers and authorities in the heavenly places like Ephesians 1 speaks to. How Jesus ascends above all spiritual rulers and authorities. He's actually the one that brought all things into existence. Everything you can think of, everything you've seen, everything you don't see, that influences what you do see. All the spiritual forces of the angels that fell, the angels that stayed, the principalities, the rulers, the creatures in heaven, everything. Everything comes into existence through the sun. Now watch, verse 17. It says, Jesus is before all things. He precedes everything. All things, not some things, not most things. That includes time itself. Time, space, and matter are three things that Christ is not limited to. He's not limited to the material world. He's not restricted to time and space. He's timeless, immaterial, and really outside of the known restrictions of this world. He's before all things. In other words, he pre-exists time, space, and matter itself. He was there to start the clock. He was there to bring time into existence and bring substance and form and structure and order to the world. He was the one. This is Jesus. In him, all things hold together. He's not just the one who brings everything into existence. He's the one who upholds everything. You take away Christ, the universe falls in on itself. You take away Jesus, the universe falls apart. It's sustained by him. And we're going to see this in Hebrews that he sustains the universe by the word of his power. 
In verse 18, it says he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the beginning. You got to understand for God to be who he declares himself to be, God himself cannot be restricted to time, space, and matter. That's exactly who Jesus claims to be. Timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. He actually pre-exists and is the cause of the, the known universe, which includes time, space, and matter. It's incredible. So you look at Christ, you go all the way back to Genesis, you should see Jesus as the one who is accomplishing and bringing into realization the word of the Father, and then the Spirit is hovering over the waters. There you go. Father, Son, and Spirit at creation. Father, Son, and Spirit at the day of a, on, the, on atonement, at the resurrection, and the indwelling of believers. You have all these different um, expressions in the Bible of the Father, Son, and Spirit as one, and creation is one of them. Okay, I don't want to go too far down, but the point is, Number three, Jesus brings everything into existence. He's the method of creation. So number one, Jesus is the perfect revelation and the better word of God. He's the rightful heir of all things. He's the method of creation. These are three characteristics that are not true of anything or anyone else in existence. No one else has these characteristics. This is not true of anyone or anything except Christ. Let's keep going. Verse three, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. So the fourth thing is Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the perfect expression of God's glory. He is what the rays of the sun are to the sun. He is to the father. So you look at the sun and the rays that are emanating out from the sun, those beautiful sun rays that, that are both the sun, yet not the sun distinct from the sun, like talking about the sun itself, that, that fiery gas ball, not Jesus. That's what Jesus is to the Father. He's the radiance, the expression, the perfect emanating uh, expression of the glory of God. Like if you were to take God's glory, put flesh and bones, make it a person, there's Jesus. The embodiment, the personification of God's glory come into our world to reveal the Father to us. He's the radiance of God's glory. That's the only helpful illustration I can think of. Like the rays are to the sun, Jesus is to the Father. Expressing the majesty and the glory and the radiance and the perfection and the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of God perfectly. That's not true of anyone else. That's not true of anything else. Number five. Let's keep going. He's the exact imprint of his nature. It's a little different than the perfect expression of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Now, Colossians tells us that he is the image of God. That's different than humanity who is made in the image of God. Jesus is not made in God's image. Like he is the exact express image of the father. We are made in the likeness of God, in his image. Jesus is not. He is the exact, like, parallel in every dimension. He perfectly expresses the nature of God. In other words, this is not just talking about Jesus in form and in substance, but in nature and essence. This is not talking about Jesus' appearance, who looks like God. At the core, his nature, his essence is divine. He has the nature of God. 
He's divine. He's deity. He's the divine son. That's why, that's where we get the language to give us the Trinity. Okay. So that's number five. Number six. Let, let's just, let's just recap. Okay. Just for those of you that are like, Jesus is the perfect revelation and the better word of God. You might say the clearer word of God. Jesus is the rightful heir of all things. He's the method of creation. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the perfect image of God's divine nature. Now it gets even better. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds, holds together, sustains the universe by the word of his power. In other words, he guarantees that the universe stays intact by nature of his own supreme authority and power. You, the universe is not just happening. It's not accidental. It's not just uh, self-existent. Our very nature, fundamentally, as those who breathe life and are dependent, this whole universe relies on something outside of itself to be sustained and upheld the way it is. This is what we call the word of God's power. This is Jesus sustaining the universe. Now, to bring it down to a human level, what can you, in your limited power, guarantee will continue existing? What are you capable of, for certain, making continue exist? There's, there's so many ways to say this. What am I able to guarantee will continue existing by my own efforts? The answer is nothing. I cannot guarantee by my own efforts that I can keep anything intact, that I can make anything continue existing. I don't have that power. The smallest little drawing on a piece of paper, I, I can't even guarantee. I can't for certain tell you that this drawing is going to remain intact for the entirety of time itself. Anything can happen that's unpredictable and out of my control. I don't control... Uh, Lots of things. I have very, very limited control. God, however, being sovereign, every detail of the fabric of our universe, like I'm talking about the smallest detail that you've never considered, and then you combine that with every other detail in the universe, He sovereignly upholds. He sovereignly sustains. Like God guarantees by his own power, the universe will be upheld until it's time to destroy the world and recreate it into something new. He has that kind of authority and power. Jesus alone can guarantee something will continue existing. You and I, we don't have that kind of authority or power. I cannot guarantee that I'll be alive tonight. I can do everything I can to keep myself safe and put the alarms in place and have nine guns at my side. I cannot guarantee that I will be alive tonight. I can't guarantee that my house will be intact by tomorrow. All I can do is trust in God to hold everything together the way he says he will. And when things fall apart, it's time for them to go because everything in this world is temporary. This is crazy. Jesus alone guarantees. And he's not, he's not like 
making these, you know, baseless claims. He's validated his claims. He's the only one that's been prophesied and, pre and predicted and, and fulfilled every prophecy given thousands of years before he ever came into our world. <clears throat> He's the only one who split time itself. The years were counting down to his arrival and now they're counting up from his ascension. He split the fabric of human history. I mean, Jesus alone resurrected from the dead and conquered death and has eyewitnesses to that resurrection that have continued throughout centuries and have not stopped, but have only grown. Jesus alone is a, is a commonality between every other religion. Every religion has a version of Jesus. Do you know why Christ is so supreme, so preeminent? It's because he's God in the flesh. That You cannot explain or fully understand the majesty of the Jesus that we serve and who's given us life. We can't comprehend it. Let's keep going. Number seven. Okay, not only does he sustain the universe, he's the only sufficient purification for sin. So in light of, I watch this, watch what the author of Hebrews is doing. He builds Jesus up to be this magnificent being that you and I fall down in awe and worship of. And my imagination cannot touch the actual glory of Christ. I can't, I can't touch anywhere near how majestic and glorious he really is. Now, with that magnificent image of Christ, the author of Hebrews says, after making purifications for sin, with all the power and sovereignty and supreme authority in the universe, as the king of all, as the sovereign king of the cosmos, Jesus chooses to come into our little tiny world to make purification for sin. That's what he does with all that power. He lays it down and he sacrifices himself. And he gives himself over so that we could have life. So the self-sacrificial love of Jesus, that self-giving love of Jesus, in the form of obedience to the point of crucifixion and death, that love framed up by this incredible power is what makes us stand in awe of him. It's not just that God chose to love. It's not just that God chose to love people who are not worthy of his love and that we deserve the actual opposite. It's the fact that with all the power in the universe, he loved us to the greatest most self-sacrificial, humbling degree. Jesus could not have ascended any lower than death on a cross at the hands of his own creation, hanging there until it's finished, until he goes into the grave to conquer it for us. So Jesus is the only sufficient purification for sin. Remember how I said the author of Hebrews, he's going to give us all these ideas up front. Like he's giving us a summary, an outline of the whole. Uh, <clears throat> he's given us a summary of the whole book in the introduction. He's going to build on the purification. He's going to build on the mediation of Christ. He's going to build on how he's the glory of God and the heir of all things. He's going to build on that. But here we have all these ideas in seed form until they're fully unpacked. Okay, so number eight. Jesus is the finished high priest. 
He's the finished high priest. Every other high priest in the Old Testament covenant sacrificial system with Israel, okay? Israel had a priesthood. They had a temple. They had sacrifices. Not because God demanded blood, but it was for their benefit so that God could dwell in their presence without their darkness leading them to be destroyed, okay? So God gives them the gift of the sacrificial system so that God's presence can dwell in Israel. Okay, the priesthood, uh, Aaron's line, who descends from the tribe of Levi, Aaron and his descendants, uh, those who tend to the temple, they were never finished. They were always doing work. They were always making sacrifices, tending to the menorah, tending to the altar, tending to the blood, tending to the ashes, tending to the cleansings. The work of a priest, especially a high priest, was never finished. When you died as a high priest or as a priest, someone else, your descendant, your son, would take up your mantle and continue the work. He was never done. It was passed on from generation to generation. The reason Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high is because he's actually done. Like God in Genesis on the seventh day, he rests because he's finished. Jesus finishes his work by making full purification for all of the crimes and sins of humanity. He's the only sufficient sacrifice. Being the eternal infinite one in human flesh, he's the only one capable of handling the full brunt of our punishment that we deserve and our death and our penalty. He takes it all himself. He's the only one capable of handling every sin. No, Jesus pays for your sin. He's the only one that can. You can't. You cannot do enough good to make up for the wrong you've done. Even if you did, that doesn't change the fact you've done wrong. In a courtroom, the judge is not looking at the criminal uh, considering all the good they've done. The fact is, they've done wrong. They've committed crime. No amount of good changes the fact they've committed crime. So you can try and pile on all this good works and, and obedience and moral efforts. You can pile that onto your sin. It doesn't change the fact you've sinned. It doesn't change it. Jesus alone can. That's why he's finished. That's why he makes purification that the priesthood never could do, that an animal sacrifice never could. He's done. He's the per perfect, powerful mediator. That's why he sits down at the right hand of the majesty. That's why the purification here is linked to him sitting. Because on the day of atonement in the Old Testament with the Israelite nation, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies to make purification for the nation's unintentional sins. That was once a year by one person. And it was never done. You'd have to do it the next year and the next year and the next year and the next year. Jesus goes, here's my once for all sacrifice. My blood is sufficient. My life is perfect. My sacrifice is, is as unblemished and blameless. And I'm eternal and infinite. So here's my perfect purification for all of humanity's sins. Now, you choose whether or not you trust in that sacrifice and enter into it and are benefiting from it or not. That's your choice. But the point is Christ has made provision. He's made provision. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Number nine. 
Jesus is superior to all spiritual beings. Verse 4 says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. So watch this. Jesus is so infinitely superior to angels that he actually has inherited the name, a name that is much more excellent than theirs. Now, name not being the label for which you're called, name being the substance and the sum total of you as a person, the substance of you, the, the sum total of all your characteristics. Jesus has inherited a name that is much more excellent. Now, we'll get to that in a minute. But notice, Jesus is superior to angels. And Ephesians talks about how Jesus has conquered all of the evil spiritual forces of darkness. In other words, Christ alone is superior, not just in value, but in power and authority. He's superior to every spiritual being that exists. Every demon, every principality, every regional spiritual darkness, uh, every angel, every elder, every creature, everything you can think of that exists in the invisible realm, that is revealed in Scripture, He's supremely above it. He's more valuable. He's more powerful. He's sovereign. He's unstoppable. But watch this, number 10. Jesus inherits the perfect name of Yahweh. Now, I am not saying that Christ attained divinity. I am not saying that He attained the name of God that he lacked. The point is, this is what it means that he's inherited the name. Okay. Remember how I said, pay very close attention to the inheritance language. Remember how I said that? Okay. If you go to Philippians 2, 9 through 11, classic. Everyone's got it tattooed on the right thigh. It says, God has highly exalted Jesus. Now watch this, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Oh, so Jesus lacked authority and supremacy and power before he resurrected? No. The point is, as the perfect resurrected human being, as the one who represents the rest of humanity, he achieves what we lacked, not what he lacked. In other words, the rewards of Christ's victory, the accomplishments of Jesus, are not for Jesus. They're for us. He didn't lack authority and power and a name. He's God in the flesh. He lacks nothing. He's self-existent. He doesn't rely on anything outside of himself. There's no deficiency in God. So this isn't Jesus lacking, but this is God bestowing a name that humanity lacked, authority and power over the earth that was transferred to the devil and his demons at the fall. Jesus restores that to humanity and God the Father bestows on Jesus the name that is above every name. Now watch, Jesus is unique in this sense. Though we get to inherit the name and bear the name, 
there's a certain element to the name that is unique to Christ, and it's this. Verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. No one's bowing to my name. No one's bowing to your name. Everyone's bowing to Jesus' name. Whether in fear and terror or in reverence and love. So every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is given the name of Supreme Lord for humanity to come and take refuge in and we inherit the name and the authority and the power to rule over the earth alongside Christ, which is always what God intended for humanity. That Adam and Eve would reign alongside and underneath the authority of Yahweh. God gave the earth to humanity as a gift to cultivate, to rule, to reign, right? Adam and Eve forfeited that authority and that rightful position in the garden. They forfeited it through their sin. And now death reigns in their place, right? And now sin sits on the throne until Jesus kicks sin and death off the throne. <laughs> and when Jesus is exalted into the heavens, there's a unique thing that takes place there. When he enters into the heavens to make way for our salvation and atonement and, and he pays for our sins with his blood, there's a specific dimension of the name that's given to Christ as the first resurrected human that you and I get to walk in. So no knee is going to bow to me, but I am co-reigning with Jesus whom every knee is going to bow to. Like, in other words, Jesus shares his reign and his authority, not as God, but as the perfect resurrected human. He shares his victory, his, his authority, his power with his people. That's why we're called reigning. That's why we're seen reigning in the new earth. That's why Paul says you're going to judge angels. So I don't want to make this about us, but there are benefits that we get from taking refuge in Jesus is we're running to and hiding in the name that is supremely above every name, that every knee bows to. This is crazy. Now, that unique, what I want to say here is the exaltation of Jesus is connected to the inheritance of the name. Okay? So verse 4, it says, Jesus has inherited a name that is more excellent than theirs not a name that he fundamentally lacked in and of himself as God, but the name that humanity required in order to reign with Christ and have their sins forgiven, that name as the perfect resurrected first of the dead, Jesus gets that name. And there's a lot of name theology we can get into that frankly, I don't think we have time for. But I do want to take you to Acts 4.12 because the question is, Let's just land the question. What does it mean that Jesus is, inherits a name that's better than angels? Well, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow to the glory of God the Father. Acts 4.12, there is no salvation in anyone else. There's no other name 
right here, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you see the, the human element to the name? There's a lot going on that, frankly, my mind can't fully understand right now in order to convey to you. But the idea of the name, at least for this context, is it is the, the name um, that extends forgiveness and salvation. It's the name that every knee will bow to. And it's the name that you and I get to bear and inherit through our faith. And again, the aspect of Jesus being supreme God and King over the universe and the, you know, the only true God, that's not something I attain, but I do get to inherit that aspect of the name, which is perfect resurrected humanity, having power and authority over the earth. Probably just confused more people than I helped. Don't worry, we'll unpack it. And the author of Hebrews is going to do a much better job than I am. I'm trying to look ahead and bring it all together. I'm not going to do that. That's a problem. Okay, we have two more to get through. So just to recap, Jesus is the perfect revelation and the better word of God. He's the rightful heir of all things. He's the method of creation. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the perfect image of God's divine nature. He's the sustainer of the universe. He's the only sufficient purification for all sin. He's the only finished high priest, the perfect mediator. Thank you, Jen, for your encouraging word. Good to see you, sister. He's superior to all spiritual beings. He inherits the name of God, the name of, that is bestowed upon the first resurrected human being for all of us to walk in also. He makes way for us to walk in that same name. Okay, and then he extends to us forgiveness through that name. The reputation and the sum total of Christ and his value and power. He extends forgiveness to us. Now, verse number 11, Jesus is actually the declared son of God. Now watch, verse 5. The author of Hebrews is, is going to keep uh, uh, reinforcing his point that Jesus is superior to angels. That he has a better name. That he's just infinitely better as the rightful heir of all things. Now watch, he's going to say, okay, uh, which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Now, the author of Hebrews here, quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, mainly. Um, he's quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which we're going to read in a minute. And we'll see that same verse actually used in Hebrews 5, verse 5 as well. So the author of Hebrews is going to quote this same verse from Psalm 2. He's going to quote it twice, right here in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 5. And when he does that, he's emphasizing a different point. He's using the same Old Testament passage to emphasize something uniquely different about Jesus and his work. Okay, so we're going to get to that in a minute. But let me help you understand this word begotten, okay? This is what people get tripped up on. Uh, especially Muslims, not to call out Muslims, but they think Jesus is created, okay? The word begotten, it, I think is a poor translation, in my opinion. Translators did a great job, but in the English, over the years, this word has developed a lot of baggage, okay? A lot of baggage, okay? So this word begotten in the Greek, it can mean, at least in the English, not the Greek, the English word begotten 
it can mean brought into existence. Because the word begot or beget, it can mean to give birth to, right? So in the English language, the word begotten can mean like created, brought into existence, have to have been given birth to, right? You didn't previously exist and now you do. Bam, hello. So that's the idea here. That's the way the English word can use, or that's the, that's the way the English language can use the word begotten. But the Greek word for begotten here, okay, it does not mean those things. I'm going to say that again. In the English, the word begotten can mean brought into existence, created, didn't previously exist, now you do. In the English, that word begotten can mean that. In the Greek, the word for begotten here does not mean any of those things. It doesn't. This word actually relates to Jesus being the appointed heir of all things. So if you go back to verse 2, it says his son, Jesus, God appointed, the father appointed Jesus to be the heir of all things. Okay? The appointed heir. You don't get to become the heir of all things as the perfect resurrected human apart from God's divine authority. Now, this is where it gets, we get into the conversation of Jesus being God in the flesh and all of that, which we're going to prove in a minute he is, if we haven't already. This word in the Greek for begotten, it actually refers to Jesus again being appointed the heir of all things. It's language of appointment. Okay. And again, here in, 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 in uh, Hebrews 1, the author is quoting Psalm 2 verse 7. So what we should do is go to Psalm 2 verse 7. <coughs> and this is the psalmist. Okay. Inspired by the Spirit of God, um, looking forward to the day when this will happen, prophesying, whether knowingly or not. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me that you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So this verse of Jesus being begotten is connected to him inheriting the nations. I'm going to say that again. Jesus being the begotten son. If you read John 3, 16, God gave his only begotten son. People think that's created and he came into existence because he didn't previously exist. That's wrong. If you actually are going to quote the fact that Jesus is the begotten son, you have to also take into consideration that he's the rightful heir of the nations. Okay, so those two ideas play off each other. So here's what we need to understand. Um... In chapter 5, the author of Hebrews is going to use this same verse. He's going to quote Psalm 2 again. Okay, I'm going to take you there just so you can read it. And he's going to use this same verse to emphasize the fact that Jesus was divinely appointed as the ultimate perfect high priest, which no one ever could be except him. And the Father validates his position and his appointment as high priest. Okay? Through the resurrection, uh, the Father validates through the signs and wonders and miracles and the testimony of the eyewitnesses and, and the prophetic word in the Old Testament and especially the resurrection, okay? The Father testifies of this. He validates the Son being the appointed high priest that no one ever could be, okay? Watch. In Hebrews 5.5, 5, it says, Christ did not exalt himself to be a high priest because he didn't descend from the tribe of Levi. The law declared that if you want to be a part of the priesthood, you got to descend from the tribe of Levi. 
So what Jesus does, and we're going to get to this later in Hebrews, is there's a different priesthood that's established by God that's on the basis of the promise, not the law. Okay, the law declares that only Levites can be priests, and the high priest especially has to descend from Aaron. But the promise God made before the law speaks to one who would actually not come from the tribe of Levi or be appointed by the law, but would be a high priest like Melchizedek. Okay, so Jesus, he doesn't assume the position of high priest on his own. The father exalts Jesus and appoints him to be high priest, even though the law says you have to be a Levite. Because Christ establishes a better priesthood as the perfect mediator in the likeness of Melchizedek. Not a perfect parallel, but it's illustrated by Melchizedek in Genesis. Okay, so I'm just unpacking this word begotten for those of you that are like, Oh, Jesus is created. He's not God. I believe the lie. No, he's God in the flesh. We just misunderstand and misinterpret this word begotten. So when the, when the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2, he's using it to say, look, uh, in Psalm chapter 2, I gotta crack my back, I'm dying here. In Psalm chapter 2, the father appoints the son to be the heir of the nations. And then he uses that, that verse in Psalm 2, to reinforce the idea that Jesus was appointed to be the high priest by the father. Okay, it's, it's divine appointment language. It has nothing to do with being created and coming into the world. In fact, let me take you to Acts 13 real quick. I did my due diligence. I studied, okay? Acts 13, it says, uh, who's preaching here? I didn't think about that. I want to say it's Peter. Could be Paul. It's Paul. Classic Paul. Look what Paul says in verse 32. He's preaching. He's preaching. He says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he's fulfilled. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There's an Old Testament promise that Paul is using, okay? that the Jews were familiar with. And he's going, remember the promise that God gave to our fathers? They're going, which one? He's going, well, the promise given to the children. He's fulfilled it by raising Jesus. And they're going, what, what promise are you talking about, Paul? He's going, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Same verse that the author of Hebrews references, Hebrews, Hebrews references in chapter 5 and chapter 1, okay? Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Paul also references that verse to say something a bit different. This is what he says. He's going, look, God has, God has uh, accomplished the promise. He's fulfilled the promise given to the, the fathers and the, the Israelite children. And they're going, how? By raising Jesus. So Paul sees the resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 2, 7, and 8. You might have missed it. But let's go back to Psalm 2, 7, and 8. Let's look at the promise. The Lord said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, and the deeds of the earth your possession. Okay? When did that happen? When did that promise in Psalm 2 get fulfilled? Apparently, Paul says that promise given to the fathers was fulfilled by the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus was actually resurrected and ascended to the Father, there is so much that gets fulfilled. One of those promises is Psalm 2, 7, and 8, that the nations are his inheritance. He's the rightful heir. He's the one who's been begotten of the Father. So, 
Paul uses Jesus being begotten to reference the resurrection. And this is actually what Colossians speaks of, Jesus being the firstborn from the dead, and he's the first of new creation, and the first of resurrected humanity. So to be begotten is to be validated and divinely appointed. Okay, it's speaking to divine appointment. And we'll get to this in a minute. Um, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 5, or chapter 1. You're my son, today I've begotten you. And then the author of Hebrews also says this, because remember, he's saying Jesus is better than angels. And they're going, nah, I don't know about that. Well, he's going, okay. In Psalm 2, was God talking to angels? And they're going, no. And the author of Hebrews goes, yeah, he's talking of Christ. Or how about this? He's going to quote here, um, mainly uh, 2 Samuel 7, a promise given to David. But it sounds a lot like Psalm 89. So it's a combination of the two. And New Testament authors can do this. They can, we do this all the time in our, in our everyday life, where we combine two different scenarios or two different uh, sources, and we just combine them into one statement. You're not lying. You're combining two validated, reliable resources into one compact statement. That's what uh, the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's taking 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89, and he's just sandwiching them. So 2 Samuel 7, 14 uh, God promises David that he'll have a, a descendant who will reign on the throne forever and that God will be a father to him, okay? And he'll be a son to, to, to the father. And then um, he's also referencing Psalm 89. It says, he shall cry to me, you are my father. You are my God and the rock of my salvation. Now watch. This is what the psalmist is testifying of in, in, in Psalm 89. That the Son, Jesus, will cry, you are my Father, my God, and my salvation. And then the Father will say, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Do you see the, the, the king of the nations, the one who rightfully rules over the nations, the one who inherits the nations? All throughout Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is a freaking wizard. He's going to quote specific passages in the Old Testament that connect the divine appointment of Jesus with inheriting the nations. So, the word begotten here, it, it has, mm, it mainly refers to, um, let me this, let me do this, let me do this. Um, did I not leave the definition here? Okay, the word begotten, Literally, in the Greek, in, in this context here, it means to be brought forth. Now, there's no reason to assume creation. There's no reason to assume uh, that whoever's being brought forth doesn't previously exist. A bringing forth is an unveiling or a revealing, a, a making known. Okay, for Christ to be begotten, watch this, okay? Every time this, this psalm is quoted, it's in reference to the validating hand of God, the approval of God, the resurrection, Jesus being ascended into the heavens, uh, inheriting the nations. So here we have in this idea of Jesus being begotten, okay? It refers to uh, uniqueness, divine appointment. It has inheritance language, okay? And it makes him the son, uh, the rightful heir, okay? So when you jam pack all of that, uh, very simply, you don't have to run to a Greek lexicon to understand a word. 
just ask yourself, how is the author using it? What's he, what's he proving? What's the point he's making by quoting that verse, by using that word begotten? Well, he's talking about Jesus being superior and being exalted. Uh, let me take you to Hebrews chapter 1. He's talking about Jesus being superior to angels, having a better name, being the son of the father. Uh, inheritance language, inheriting the nations. So, one more verse. Psalm 89, I already quoted that. When you take all these ideas in pieces and you put them all together, for Jesus to be begotten of the Father means that the Father has brought him forth, revealed, right? The spoken final word of God to, the, to humanity is Christ. Jesus is revealed as the perfect expre express image of God. He's validated how? By being appointed as a high priest, as the perfect high priest that sits down at the right hand of the Father, like we saw in Hebrews 5, right? When, when, when the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2 again and says, Jesus uh, was begotten of the Father, appointed as high priest, and here he's appointed as the heir of the universe, of all things. Or at the resurrection, Jesus is validated by the Father, or uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father says, this is my son. There's a lot of different ways that the Father approves and validates Christ in a revealing way. Christ is not only revealed in his incarnation. Christ is revealed progressively through his signs, through his wonders, through the death and resurrection, through fulfilled prophecy, through, through teaching the disciples. Jesus isn't like, doesn't come on the scene and everyone's like, oh, it's God. It's a slow revelation, but it is a complete and full revelation in Christ himself. It just comes in waves and it, over a period of time. So for Jesus to be begotten, I probably confused more people than I've helped. When the father says, you're my son today, I've begotten you. You could almost say, I've brought you forth and validated you in the presence of many at the baptism, Mount of Transfiguration, but mainly the resurrection and the ascension to be the rightful heir of all things and the ultimate high priest. So that's what I want you to think. The father begets Christ by bringing him forth into the world. Not doesn't have to have creation attached to it. Doesn't have to have uh, a sense of coming into existence. Jesus enters into our world. He's revealed. And then the father validates him and says, he really is mine. He's the prophet Moses spoke of. He's the divine son in Psalm 2. I'll validate that and reveal him to you through the resurrection, through making him the ultimate high priest, through ascending, through bringing him and exalting him into the heavens at the right hand of me, through making him the, the perfect fulfillment and of all the promises I've made and in making him the rightful heir of all things. This is the father validating and appointing Jesus to a position that is for the benefit of humanity. Okay, high priest, sacrifice, rightful heir, first of resurrected humanity, all these different positions, God brings Jesus forth and validates him for our benefit. And, and God says, I'll be to him a father, he'll be to me a son. Quoting Psalm 89 and 2 Samuel 7, okay? Now, what you might have missed, or what we haven't gotten to yet, here's the last verse for today. Verse 6. I'll, I'll do a better study on what the word begotten means, but uh, the word Greek, go to the actual Greek lexicon, and you'll see in this context, the variation of the word being used is just to bring forth. There's no creation 
uh, element attached to it. There's no sense of he didn't previously exist before he was brought forth. It's like if I have something backstage and I bring it out, it's not that it didn't exist before, it's that you didn't know about it. I'm revealing it to you, I'm showing it to you, okay? So, Lauren says to beget is to become the father of, to create is to make. Exactly. <laughs> Lauren just summed up everything I'm trying to say. How does the father prove that Jesus is his son and that really he's the father of Christ? Again, through the institution of the new priesthood, through the resurrection, through the ascension, through the signs and miracles, through the baptism, the Mount of Transfiguration, did I say signs and wonders through the prophetic word that Christ fulfills and through appointing Jesus the ultimate heir. In other words, God is not becoming the father of Jesus in a sense where Jesus was never the divine son of God. The father is becoming uh, or is being made known to us, okay, as the father of Christ. Jesus um, is being made known to us as the one who is the son of God. So, yeah, there's, that's why the word begotten is just such a uh, clunky word to use. It's just unhelpful, for me at least. I can't think of a better English word off the top of my head, but I probably wouldn't have used begotten. Maybe like a variation of the word uh, brought forth in an appointment kind of way, in a validating kind of way. I don't, begotten is just trips people up, man. That's why I had to go into it. So the last thing you're going to see, number 12, is that Jesus is worthy of angelic worship. Don't be telling me he's not God after everything we've gone through. And again, when he brings the firstborn and you're like, aha, gotcha, firstborn. He was born. He didn't exist before. He's created. He's not God. Hold on, Tommy. He brings the firstborn into the world. When he does... This is what God says, let all God's angels worship him. Isn't that what happens um, when Jesus is incarnated and he comes into the world and uh, on Christmas night, right? Uh, God shows up to the shepherds or the, the angel Gabriel does and they, um, they start praising God in the highest. The angels worship Jesus. Now, this is not just something that's happening. This is something that God is commanding. Um, oof. I could get into some interesting stuff here. I didn't look at the references for this verse. Watch this. Okay. Psalm 97, verse 7. It says, All worshipers of images are put to shame. They make their boast in worthless idols. The heavens proclaim the righteousness of God. All the people see his glory. Worship God. All of you gods. Lowercase g. Like how Satan is referred to as the god of this world. He's not God in, this, in the way you think. When we think God, we think omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. All these different attributes. Sovereign, uh, self-sufficient. But to be a lesser spiritual being... Uh, can be a lowercase g God. You're not omnipotent, but you're a spiritual being. And the psalmist is calling these lesser spiritual beings who are robbing God of worship. He's calling them to worship the true and living God. Which, I mean, Paul even testifies that there are demons behind idols. And So Deuteronomy 32 is what he's quoting here. 
Uh, rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down, all you gods. Lowercase g, spiritual lesser beings. Uh, he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. This is talking about God. So, the author of Hebrews quotes Deuteronomy 32 to say, look, let all God's angels worship him. And he inserts angels where in Psalms it says lowercase g gods or lesser spiritual beings, lesser Elohim. And angels are spiritual beings. So in other words, the last point about Jesus is that he's worthy of angelic worship. And again, this is not true of anything or anyone in existence. What I want to tackle, let's just think about that. The angels are crying out, holy, 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 and worshiping not just the Father, but the divine Son. Why? Because God actually commands. You read all about how God is the only one who's worthy of praise, and he lets no one else you know, share in his glory and his worship and praise. He doesn't share his glory with another. Yet, you read Revelation, you read John, you read all these instances of God commanding angels and people to worship his son. Okay, I'm just saying. That might not automatically mean Jesus is God, but it, it does help the case. Um, so what I want to tackle real quick as we close is this concept of the firstborn. This won't be as long as begotten, I don't think. It'll be a little faster. A lot of people read firstborn and assume Jesus was created. Okay, Again, like the term begotten. Firstborn in our English language, it's, it's helpful in Jewish culture because they understand a lot differently about firstborn than we do. They understand that terminology way differently than we do. But in our English, the firstborn, just too much baggage attached. So I'm going to reference a few verses. Watch. Okay. The literal sense of firstborn, when, when you take it literally, there's, there's two senses of the word firstborn. There's the literal sense in which someone is actually born first, like the first of the children, a mother and, and father's first child. Okay. That's the literal sense of a firstborn. And then there's the metaphorical usage of firstborn, which I'll show you with scripture, okay? The, the, the literal sense of firstborn, listen very closely and see if you can hear anything we've already applied to Jesus just in this literal sense, okay? The literal sense of firstborn refers to offspring. The firstborn son in a patriarchal society, I'm just reading my notes, was given unique special status, okay, by the father. The firstborn would become the head of the family. Hmm. Jesus being the head of the body. Right? The firstborn would receive his father's blessing. Hmm. What does that sound like, Ephesians chapter 1? The firstborn of the family would receive a double portion of the inheritance. He'd be the primary carrier of the family name to continue the legacy. Okay, so that's the literal sense of an actual firstborn child. The metaphorical usage, and you can look at Genesis 27 and Deuteronomy 21, 17 uh, for references to that. The metaphorical usage of firstborn actually refers to uniqueness and special favor and treatment. So it is like the literal sense, just as the actual firstborn child has special status and treatment, so that whoever is called firstborn metaphorically also has a special favor and treatment. 
And we see this in Exodus chapter 4, 22 through 23. When God, watch this, God calls Israel his firstborn. So in Exodus chapter 4, God appoints Israel and chooses Israel to be his firstborn son. Now Israel is a nation, a group of people. A group of people. How is a group of people, a nation, a singular firstborn son? Well, it's not literally. It's metaphorically. So God is going to call Israel his firstborn son, not uh, in the sense that they were conceived or literally offspring of God, born, but in the sense that they were uniquely appointed and chosen by God to be a special nation. Okay? So... Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, it says, Then you'll say to Pharaoh, God's talking to Moses, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And he's not talking about Jacob the patriarch. He's talking about the descendants of Jacob being Israel. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel. That's why his descendants are referred to as Israel. In the Old Testament, often nations are referred to by their patriarchal head. So you got uh, Esau is often uh, how you refer to Edom. Or Jacob is how you refer to Israel. Or other places like in Deuteronomy when God's using Israel to remove the nations of the land. But Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I'll kill your firstborn son. So interesting. God says Israel, the nation, is his firstborn son, singular. Can't be literal, has to be metaphorical, has to be to illustrate a point. And he says, let my son go that they, that he may serve me, okay? So, when God calls Israel his firstborn, um, this shows us that Israel had a favored status among the nations, not because of anything Israel did or brought to the table, but because of God's grace. And Israel was uniquely in covenant relationship with God. No other nation was. No other nation had a covenant with God in the temple and the system and priesthood and law. It also meant that Israel had a priestly function to perform um, and to function as God's saving light to the Gentiles. Let me say that again. This is not just about Israel having status, but a unique purpose in relation to the rest of the nations. Okay. In other words, they're appointed to go and be the benefit to other nations. So the Greek word for firstborn, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, the word firstborn, let me just make sure I'm not talking out my butt here because these notes are from a couple years ago. I haven't really fixed this part before I say anything. Aha, I'm right. Okay, the word firstborn for the, the Greek word here literally means eldest, um, preeminent, chief, first. And eldest doesn't have to carry this idea of, uh, I am the first of the children born of my mother and father. Okay. Firstborn again, just means, um, preeminence, uh, referring to status, chief, holding the first place of. Okay. So, let me take you to Genesis 49.3. Now, this is Jacob talking to his actual firstborn, who was literally conceived of him. It says, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits are my strength. Now watch, preeminent in dignity. 
preeminent in power. On what basis? On the basis of him being the first child. He is preeminent, first chief, holding the first place in dignity and in power. That's what Jacob says about Reuben, okay? So when we talk about Jesus being the firstborn, all we're saying is that he's the first um, and the greatest. In what sense? In supremacy, in uniqueness, in greatness, in power, in authority. In other words, Jesus is the head uh, of all those who would be raised from the dead after him. For Jesus to be the firstborn doesn't mean he's literally born and created by God. Well, he's born to the Virgin Mary. doesn't mean he's actually like uh, created by God at, at the moment of conception. Firstborn just carries status, uh, preeminence, chiefhood. He's the first. He's supreme. It's what was said of Reuben. It's preeminent in dignity and power. In other words, Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. He's the first to ascend into the heavens on behalf of humanity. He's the first to enter into the presence of God as perfect resurrected humanity. He's, he's the first in so many ways, okay? Revelation 1.5. It says, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Well, you don't, you're not conceived by coming, to, uh, coming back to life from death right? When you die and you come back to life, you're not being conceived and being brought into existence, having no prior existence. So for Jesus to be coming up from the dead is just speaking to his resurrection, which assumes he already previously existed. In other words, let me just break it down very simply. For Jesus to come back from the dead assumes he existed prior to die in the first place. And then he comes back to life. He's not coming into existence with no prior existence. He's just the first of resurrected humanity. He's the first to rise from the dead in a glorified body. And he's the ruler of the kings on the earth. Remember how I said Jesus being the first or begotten or, or firstborn is always attached to inheritance and being the rightful heir and ruler. So again, for Jesus to be the firstborn means what? He's the rightful heir of all things. That's what he said in verse 2. So we already had, you know, language for this phrase before he ever told us that he was the firstborn. If the author of Hebrews said this in verse 6, he'd still be correct. Again, when he brings the rightful heir into the world, which I think would be a helpful translation maybe, and maybe it doesn't carry a certain few elements that are necessary here, but I still think it's helpful. He's the rightful heir. Then you'd think, oh, like he's the first. Uh, like uh, of, of like when you speak of a patriarchal society, I can't speak. When you speak of the first child in a patriarchal society, they have the inheritance. They have the name. They have rightful chief place as bearing the father's name and continuing the legacy. It's exactly what is true of Christ. It has nothing to do with him being created. And you're like, mm, not convinced. Well, first, we've already seen that he's the firstborn from the dead. Meaning, he, it's not that he was brought into existence. 
It's he's the first of resurrected humanity to come up from the grave. And then we get to follow in his footsteps. Romans 8.29, it says, Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. To do what? Well, to be conformed to the image of his son. In what way? Well, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. So was I conceived in the same family of Jesus in order to be his brother? No. But I am going to be brought to life, resurrected from the dead, glorified with Jesus. And in that sense, I'm going to follow in the footsteps of my elder brother. Because what? He's the first to be brought forth from the dead. And everyone who trusts in him follows in his footsteps. And they bear the name of Christ, right? They inherit the, 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 the rewards and the accomplishments of Christ. And they actually get to be rightful co-heirs with him. So when we talk about Jesus being the rightful heir of all things, it's not Jesus holding back everything from humanity. It's Jesus winning back everything for humanity. He didn't lack anything. He didn't need it. He wasn't deficient. Christ resurrects in a sense to win back our inheritance and our rightful place as those who rule over the earth that God has given us to cultivate. So this is not about Jesus being created. This is about being, him being the first the rightful heir of all things, the first and the greatest and the ultimate of his priesthood, right? The first to resurrect from the dead into a glorified body. This is Jesus. And then Colossians 1.18 will verify he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the head of the church. What do you know? It's like being firstborn has to do with headship. It's like firstborn has to do with preeminence and first place. That's what Christ has. And I'll tell you what, I'll take you back to Psalm 89. Because I like Psalm 89. Good morning, Steph. Good to see you, bro. Psalm 89, okay? Verse 26. Prophesying, looking forward to Christ, the ultimate son, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. This is what Christ says of the father. And then the father responds, I'll make him the firstborn. In what sense? The highest of the kings of the earth. So is Jesus here being conceived and brought into existence because he didn't previously exist? No. This is Jesus inheriting the full uh, scope of all that God gives to the rightful heir of creation. That's Christ. This is Jesus inheriting the nations, being the supreme king and lord of all things, including the nations and the world. This is, our, this is the, the God we serve. So... When, when the psalmist links firstborn, he's connecting it to inheritance. He's connecting it to, to uh, inheriting the nations and being the first and the rightful heir. So when you think firstborn, think this. When it's, when it's applied to Christ, it refers to a unique status given to Jesus, which includes the fact that he's the only unique God-man, and it's a unique appointment by God. It's God approving of Jesus, validating him, divinely appointing him to be the first of resurrected humanity, to be the ultimate mediator and high priest, to be the one who rules over all things and is the rightful heir. It's Jesus being appointed through his resurrection and ascension to become what humanity failed to be. So again, this is not Jesus coming into existence. This is not Jesus. He wasn't ever alive before he was conceived of the Virgin Mary. This is Jesus coming into 
our world having previously existed because he pre-exists time right and he comes into our world to win back everything we forfeited to win back everything that you and i gave up and couldn't access because of our sin and our crime against god we've committed crime and violated the law of god we've all failed no one is without failure no one's perfect so jesus comes into our world and he does what no one else could to attain a status that you and i desperately needed and he does that as the perfect resurrected human and hebrews 5 5 says look jesus was appointed by god so when you think about jesus being the firstborn think sonship think supremacy think inheritance think chief position and first place hebrews 5 5 referring to jesus being the begotten of the father jesus is appointed to be high priest as a son so when god validates christ as the ultimate high priest that's him really validating him as the son the divine son He's saying, this really is the one you've been waiting for. And then let me take you to Hebrews 7 to close. There's another instance of Jesus being appointed as a son, firstborn, rightful heir. Okay. So watch this. Hebrews 7.28, it says, The law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. The law of God says you got to be a Levitical, uh, a descendant of Levi in order to be a part of this priesthood. And if you really want in the inner circle, you got to be a descendant of Aaron. But the word of the oath or God's promise, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Through the perfect status of Jesus, when he attains that perfect resurrected glorified human status for us he's being appointed as the true rightful heir and divine son that we get to uh, receive forgiveness and salvation and inheritance from so jesus is not being appointed as as god he's not attaining status of divinity okay god is coming into our world to attain the status of rightful heir and son that humanity gets to benefit from. Jesus is the rightful heir. He's God. He deserves everything. He owns everything. He sustains everything. But humanity, man, we lack. We need. There's a certain status we can't achieve and attain on our own. And Christ comes in to achieve that for us as one of us, as the perfect human. That's why he takes on flesh. That's why he has to be made perfect like one of us and take on temptation and sickness and everything the human condition has to offer. He has to bring himself under subjection to those things to experience the full brunt of human, human uh, depravity and brokenness and, and the, the hopeless state of our world. He subjects himself to that so he can bring us up to a status that he's attained for us through his death and resurrection. So... To recap, to recap, 12 reasons Jesus is worthy of worship, 12 unique characteristics of Christ that are not true of anything or anyone alone. 
And I'll tell you, next week we'll get to the fact that Jesus really is God in the flesh even more. And these teachings are recorded on YouTube and they're on podcasts and you can check out the website for everything. But let me recap. Number one, Jesus is the perfect revelation and the better word of God. Number two, Jesus is the rightful heir of all things. Number three, he's the method of creation. Number four, he's the radiance of God's glory. Number five, he's the perfect image of God's divine nature. Number six, he's the sustainer of the universe. Number seven, he's the only sufficient purification for all sin. Number eight, he's the finished high priest, the perfect mediator. Number nine, Jesus is superior to all spiritual beings. Number 10, Jesus inherits the perfect name of God as the perfect resurrected human. Number 11, Jesus is declared to be the son of God. And number 12, Jesus is worthy of angelic worship as the only begotten true firstborn heir. Don't tell me Jesus isn't superior to anything this world has to offer or anything your mind can conceive of. He is. He's so much better. This world can't touch the greatness of our Savior. Your, Your imagination, your comprehension cannot touch the full scope of how supreme and majestic and great our Jesus really is. And so if anything, Hebrews is going to exalt Christ and give you a fuller view of him so that you would go and live an appropriate life because you live out your view of God. And so if your view of God grows and, is, and becomes uh, uh, perfected and clearer, your life will adjust and you'll live a better life. You will live a better life as you know Christ better. And you come to know Jesus through the gospel, through the message of Christ. He's made it available. And for those of you that don't know, we're going to jump on a Zoom call in about nine minutes. Our Zoom prayer calls for everyone, except trolls and disrespectful wieners, okay? This Zoom calls for anyone. You want a fellowship? You want encouragement? You want to share your thoughts? You want to process with other believers? You want to um, ask for prayer? This is the fellowship for you. So join our Discord community. Jump on the Zoom call. Uh, check out our website where you can get free, free online Bible study skills courses. You can get free access to our study devotional studies. Um, And you can uh, look at our podcast and our YouTube channel and my book. Um, You can become a supporter monthly or give on a, on a one-time basis through cash app, PayPal or Venmo. Uh, One time you can be a monthly patron where you get lots of exclusive benefits. All that about the ministry is found on our website. But what we're doing here is we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you've benefited from this and and the Lord is really impressioning your heart to invest and sow seed so that we can keep creating all this free content, whether it's the free online courses, whether it's the free devotional studies, whether it's the free Bible studies and teachings and podcasts and videos, whatever it is, the, the material, you are making a way for anyone on the planet to have access to this free content. So thank you for those that do support and give at all. Thank you for being a part of this and helping me make this content for free. Listen, if you want to know Christ or you are a new believer and you're looking for a place to start, I would really encourage you to reach out to any of these moderators. Reach out to me. You can hit me up on on Instagram. You can join our Discord community and family and you can um, talk to any one of us. There's also a link on my website called 
um, first timers, like just click it. It says start here. It'll show you everything you need to know as a new believer or everything you need to know if you want to come to Christ. Um, and so check that out. We're going to jump on a Zoom call, the Zoom link. If you're wondering where the Zoom link is, if you're on YouTube, it's in the description below. Click the Zoom link. Yeah, the password is Jesus in about six minutes. So set a timer, set an alarm, do whatever you got to. Um, in six minutes, we're going to jump on our Zoom prayer call as a community. And if you're on TikTok, the link is in my bio. Okay, so just go to my profile, click the link. The Zoom link is there. The password is Jesus. And any one of you can join and be a part of the, the family and the com community and conversation and, and get prayer and all that. Okay, and um, this message will be uploaded probably tomorrow night, probably. And um, by the way, we do Zoom calls every weekday. For those of you that don't know, every weekday we jump on a Zoom call as a family. And every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we have these live stream studies. So Monday and Wednesday, we're going through Hebrews. Friday, we do Bible study workshops, where I actually go through my Bible study process, process and we do an, uh, a real-time uh kind of demonstration of how to read the Bible well. And so if you want to learn how to develop the, uh, the necessary Bible skills, Bible study skills, go to my website, abovereproachministry.com, and there's free online Bible study skills courses you can start taking today. Most of them are revolving around keywords and learning how to trace keywords and learning how to draw out truth and link it all together. So if you want to start learning how to read the Bible, I encourage you to check that out. And um, I think that is all. I'll see you guys in five minutes on the Zoom call. Thanks for watching and keep moving towards Jesus.